1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Laurent Dubois, the author of The Banjo, America's African Instrument. Our conversation explores the history of the banjo, from its origin in various African instruments and its parallel development in the Americas and the Caribbean, to its crucial role in minstrelsy and jazz, and its eventual identification as a white, rural, and Appalachian instrument. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you decided to write about the history of the banjo.
0: So I am a historian of the Caribbean. Um, I have worked uh, on different different aspects of the history of the Caribbean, uh, mostly focusing on the 18th century, originally in my dissertation and first book on Guadeloupe and Haiti. Um, and I've always been really interested in cultural history and or the links between kind of culture and politics um, in that region. Um, so um, this project really emerged out of that. It's a project ar- about the afro Atlantic. Atlantic world, about the, the Caribbean, and the connections with North America. Um, and uh, so it, it built on that earlier work, but it was also a departure in a number of ways.
1: What are the in, one of the many intriguing things is that your book's subtitle talks calls the banjo America's African Instrument. So before we get started, can you even explain sort of How um, a banjo can be America's African instrument.
0: Yeah, and that that title does sort of condense um, a a lot of the argument of the book, although the key there is understanding that both I'm using the term Africa uh, or African and American both very much as historically constituted terms, you know, not, they're about, they're about the ways in which people have imagined Africa and America. Um, And I sort of argue that the banjo allows us, first of all, the banjo as it is as both an object and um, a symbol. So it's both an instrument that makes sound and is played by musicians, but it's also very much a a symbol that's been burdened, you might say, with um, a lot of different meanings over time. Um, and I, I argue that we, in order to understand the banjo, we really need to understand both how it's been seen as African, and then ultimately how that made it possible for it to be seen as American. Um, and I argue in an early chapter, which is that the banjo is what I call the first African instrument. By which I mean, it's an instrument that, unlike the The African instruments, the instruments from West or Central Africa that helped inspire it, um, had to sort of signify something that was African in a general sense. So whereas instruments in Africa would have been relatively particular to certain musical traditions identified, say, with griot performers or with rituals in certain areas – and those instruments are actually incredibly varied and differentiated. The banjo, I argue, um, was a way to create music in the very specific context of the the Caribbean and, and North American plantation, where the problem was how to kind of perform um, music that was African in some general sense that brought together a kind of coalition um, of individuals who had quite different ideas about music, in fact, um, but but for which music could kind of provide a certain kind of solidarity. Um, and argue that because the instrument was invented to to do that, in a sense, to bring together traditions, um, that's really what was made to do in the first place, to bring together different African traditions. Um, that's the foundation for the way that it ultimately um, has continued to do that in all kinds of different ways in our, in our culture to the present day.
1: So this is, it's a really interesting argument, I think, that you're making about sort of um, the banjo and its relation to Africa. So what are some of the um, instruments that were precursors um, to the banjo um, and, and where did they come from and, and how did they get to the Americas?
0: mm mm-hmm. I mean, this, the history of, of course, instruments is as old as human beings themselves almost. And the book kind of starts out with this this journey deep into Egypt and, and North Africa and Iberia and obviously in all these places and, and lots of other civilizations in India and, and Asia. Um, there are lots of instruments that have the basic structure is a resonator of some kind. So either wood or in the case of, of a lot of the instruments I'm talking about, gourds were used. This is a resonator. Um, and then that, can, that resonator... Um, is attached to some kind of neck and strings are stretched, uh, you know, up and down that neck and over the resonator, the resonator makes it so that the sound travels and, um, is louder than it would be if there was no resonator, obviously. Um, but the resonators can be built in lots of ways. We're familiar most sort of in say in European musical traditions with things like guitars and lutes, which are built out of wood on all sides, um, have a little sound hole that the sound comes out of. And then a neck with different kinds of strings and constructions, um, the instruments that I uh, really focus on that are at the kind of root of the story are a variety and an incredible diversity, actually, of instruments in Africa that are built with um, either a wooden or gourd body, but then they're covered with an animal skin. Um, different animal skins can be goat or, or other kinds of animal skins, and that creates a resonator that's a very particular kind of sound. It's um, you know you you might think of it as almost like a drum as opposed to something else. It's almost in fact one you can sometimes describe the banjo as a drum on a stick is, is some is sort of the easiest way sometimes to describe it. Um, but the fact that the resonator has the skin on it um, is, I think, is, is what I argue is kind of the, the base definition of what a banjo is, and that construction is something you can find in literally hundreds of different kinds of lutes and harps in West and Central Africa. Um, you know, there's a collection in Tervuren, in this Belgian museum that was that emerged out of the colonial process, and these were um, instruments taken from the Congo that has over 400 different types of lutes and harps um, most of them made with this kind of construction with a skin Um, in West Africa too there's just a profusion of them Um, some of the better known ones uh, an instrument called the ngoni, um, also sometimes called the halam in different contexts which is kind of a long oblong body Um, this is the instrument most often or very often played by griot um, who are hereditary musicians in in West Africa Um, so that's an instrument people might have seen on the stage um, outside Africa the kora which is a, harp, um, a harp-like instrument a very complex harp-like instrument is also more commonly seen on the concert stage um, but in some ways those are sort of the tip of the iceberg um, for a much, much larger and, and diverse uh, set of constructions of, of instruments um, and the one thing I'll say is that one piece of this that intrigued me in particular is that many of uh, many of the harps, especially in Central Africa, are constructed to be almost like a human form, so they, they have kind of legs or the neck is almost like a human neck and there might be a head, that's where the, the strings are attached. So they're anthropomorphized in a certain way, they're, they're depicted almost as spirits or beings um, in the way that they're constructed. Well,
1: let's pick that thread up because I think it comes back up later in your book. Is um, is there a different conception or a role for music in these cultures that you're studying than perhaps we today in 21st century America view music? How, how did they? How did those African peoples view the music that was being produced on the on these um, proto banjo instruments?
0: Mm-hmm. Now, and that's one of the big emphases early in the book is that the banjo, as it emerged, was very much—I I would argue—a spiritual instrument, an instrument linked to to spiritual practices, to healing, to funerary rites, um, to connecting in all kinds of different ways with with the homelands in Africa that you know were across the ocean, that were kind of uh, far away in certain ways, but what were kind of reignited or or um, brought to bear on the condition of, of slaves in the Americas through the music. Um, in, in the early chapters I describe, you know, there are some, some harps and that were played in really deeply religious contexts that were ceremonial instruments um, that allowed sort of spirits to come. Um, in the case of the griot in West Africa, you have also a, a kind of powerful, essentially, you know, religious and political mo- meaning to the music. The music is transmitting history um, and kind of helping to produce history by the way that it transmits history. And the griot take, have a very important role in the kind of politics and, and life of, of many societies. Um, but you certainly also have other instruments that are much more kind of, you might call them just sort of vernacular or recreational, played for dancing, um, in less formal contexts. And and the musicians who play them might be trained in different ways. The griots are really hereditary, kind of passed on by generation to generation. Other instruments played in different ways. Um, so it's really this, this uh, kind of cartography of music that's really rich and complicated and especially complicated to figure out, of course, what that music was like in the 17th and 18th century, which is, as a historian, is kind of the relevant question for me. Um, so obviously we know we can study that music today in the 21st century or or use the the, the ethnomusicology of the 20th century and the instruments. Um, but more difficult, actually, is to know exactly what that musical landscape was like at the time of the Middle Passage, and that's something that I tried to do early in the book.
1: This is where it is like a geeky professor, I have to ask this question. So tell us, tell me a little bit about some of those methodological difficulties, because um, I think right now you're, the way you're describing it here um, is like, Oh yeah. You just kind of went back and looked at these things, but in reading your book, it's clear that it's much more challenging for the historian to recapture the sounds and the instruments that, that were in existence during the time period we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I often describe this as it's really a kind of archaeology, but an archaeology where you really have just little fragments, you know, um, and the only way to do it in some ways was to take a really broad uh, look. You have to take a really broad look because curiously, of course, people I mean, there are some times and places where people write a lot about music. So, for instance, um Great resource are the tombs in Egypt because it so happens that in a lot of the tombs in Egypt they paint images of of parties and of, of music. So you have images from Egypt um, that can sometimes lead people to think that you know Egypt is where these instruments came from. If really, what it is is that Egypt is where they were documented. You know it's, that doesn't correlate necessarily to where they came from. Um, similarly, I talk about a you know a medieval illumination that depicts instruments, but in a lot of cases for West and Central Africa, part of the issue is that instruments tend not to last. That well, They're very hard to preserve, actually. So unless instruments are preserved in museums in one way or another, you know, the instruments of the 16th and 17th century have long since disappeared. Um, they're made out of, you know, gourd, wood, organic material. Um, so we don't have that many material objects. And then we have the problem that... Um, In many cases, people within these societies didn't necessarily document the the music in in a kind of written form. So you have outside documentation of these, um, which comes with its own problems because people, um, especially the kind of colonial European depictions of music, often have interesting details and insights, but they're obviously also often missing something. They often are often quite judgmental about the music and so forth. So um, the moments when people describe music are relatively rare and precious, and the key was to try to... Of gather those together, and that was very true. Actually, about the um, the sources I used to to reconstruct the early history of the banjo in in the Caribbean and North America too.
1: Well, that was great, and, and I think that was something that really comes out in your book. And I, I just was fascinated by by some of those things. Now, as we move to the Americas and the Caribbean, oh. um, it's interesting that the 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 name even the banjo takes all a long time to kind of develop and, and you spend some time um, in the book trying to sort of locate um, where, where, the, where the banjo as a, as a concept kind of appears in all these places and, and, and what, where it kind of developed from. So can you maybe talk a little bit about how the banjo got its name um, and where you were finding traces of it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I actually begin the, the book with a list of all these different names for the banjo. I mean, I say it, the first line of the book is that the banjo has had many names. Um, and then I argue it they've all, they all kind of coalesce around describing one particular sound that I think is essential to to, to this instrument, which is that sound of strings humming over skin as, as I describe it. So it's, it's having strings, having a neck, but having a, an animal skin, um, which, which is a way of, you know, the key about this is it's a sound that, that you might hear, but in a sense you also feel um, it resonates It vibrates in a kind of way, um, you know, that would be different from other types of types of instruments. And I think that's kind of key. Um, So, it's always puzzling to try to figure this out that, um, of course we have a lot of different ways of, of thinking about cultural history. Um, sometimes it's tempting of course, to think about dissemination, like somebody invites and something somewhere and then it spreads from there. Um, but at the same time, it seems like with musical instruments, you more often have certain kinds of parallel developments, um, people finding the same way to do something in different places. um, it's really hard when you have so so few fragments, it's really hard to trace a kind of linear story. Um, so what I tried to do was instead just to, in some ways, just present the readers with as much data as I could find, or as, as most of the data that I could find, um, and then offer a kind of reading and interpretation of it. Um, and what I try to argue with there is that, um, there are somewhat similar circumstances. The plantation world, especially in the Caribbean and certain parts of North America, is bringing together with inc- a lot of density and a lot of speed cultural groups from all over the continent. Um, obviously, there's variation in different places. You have different people coming from different parts of Africa. Um, but in some ways, the problem that the musician has, um, which is where I really try to foreground it, you know, what, what did a musician who was f- facing this situation or a musician who wanted to play music – in the, in the plantations um, for these groups of people, the problem that they had was how to play music that kind of allowed as many people as possible in. Um, and while, of course, throughout history and culture, there's been many cases of cultures coming in contact and, and you know, encounters all over the Americas, obviously um, – it does. I, I do argue, as Caribbeanists often has, that there was something about the intensity of um, the bringing together of these different African groups, um, the level of kind of the, the arrival, the steady arrival of people into this very deadly plantation environment, where you had you know fifty percent death rates. Um, and the kind of intensity of that, that created a, a pretty particular cultural moment, um, in a certain way. And that so in some ways the banjo is an artifact, I would argue of that, of that very particular kind of cultural moment and the needs that emerged from it. And, um, one of the things I thought was interesting was how
1: many of the Europeans described the instrument. So what were some of the ways that some of the the European travelers, um, almost primarily travelers, I think, although I guess it was some people who, who worked there, um, how did they describe what they were seeing with these banjo-like instruments?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the interesting thing is that it, it took it would often take a traveler who, for whom, it's almost like um, the the ubiquity of these instruments and musics meant that people who lived in those societies didn't really consider them something special that you would describe, right? So it's it's like. Because the music was all over the place, actually, right? It was something that was pretty common. Um, So it's interesting as to sort of which Europeans or which whites decide to describe it as often, you know, there's a particular reason for that. And it's often either they're travelers or they have a particular project of cultural or or natural history. Um, So – and – I mean, there were varieties. There were some who described it. um, I'll say this, by the the end of the 18th century, interestingly, it becomes kind of a commonplace that you have to sort of often describe a banjo or talk about banjos if you're describing slaves, right? So part of the story I tell in the book is that, interestingly, relatively early on, the banjo becomes kind of a prop in either abolitionist or pro-slavery discussions, which creates its own problem because sometimes if something's just a prop in a story, you don't even know if the person actually observed the actual banjo <laughs> or if, you know, it's become, a, it, 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 in some ways, it's this uh, kind of question of literary history and tropes. Um, so I had to kind of distinguish between that and then other cases where I'm pretty sure that the person really observed and, and is bringing de- new details to light. Um, one case early on that I talk about is this man, Hans Sloan, who is a pretty fascinating character. He went to Jamaica in this late 17th century, just as Jamaica's really getting off the ground as an English colony. Um, and he uh, is a, he's interested in natural history and he begins to work on and study the flora, the flora and fauna of Jamaica and other islands eventually collecting leaves and plants and he re- he eventually publishes uh, a few decades later in 1707 this very large beautiful book of two volumes almost entirely dedicated to the plants and animals of of the Caribbean. But there is um, a really fascinating little bit on music, including an, an engraving with several instruments he collected in Jamaica and um, some transcriptions of music that are actually basically the only transcription we have of, of slave music up, up until the late 18th, early 19th century. And this is from the late 17th century. So it's pretty remarkable. Um, his collection he ends up becoming a kind of big collector and his collection is the basis for the British Museum so he has this huge impact on kind of english collecting but it all really began in jamaica and it began actually interestingly because when he wanted to learn about plants and animals especially plants he realized that that often the enslaved africans had some of the best knowledge about those plants so that's how he first kind of entered into discussion with them and ended up documenting their culture so that's one example and then there are many others in the book of somebody kind of unique who had a unique eye one for one reason or another. And then because of that documented and kind of passes on, um, information that's really critical for, for this history.
1: Well, one of the, the, the threads that you kind of mentioned, and this is really going to kind of push us into the 19th century is, um, how banjos became really central in sort of representing certain images of African-Americans, especially in the United States, um, So how did banjos start becoming this sort of this symbol or metaphor um, for enslavement and African-Americans? And how does that kind of eventually tie in with minstrelsy?
0: Mm -hmm. So there's there's a number of. Of ways this happens. Um, I mean, the kind of the pivotal people, the pivotal moment are really a group of musicians in the 1830s. Um, the, probably the most important being Joel Walker Sweeney, who's from the area around Lynchburg, Virginia, um, and is one of the first to, He's he's white. He grows up uh, in a family that doesn't own slaves, but in a region that has a lot of large plantations, and he learns to both make and to play the banjo from African Americans, and he's uh, one of those who brings it to the stage. In New York City, um, and helps to create this this form known as blackface minstrelsy, which is essentially white uh, white musicians who black their faces. They put you know ham grease and other things on their face to make make themselves sort of look black. Although I mean, the audience, everyone in the audience understands that this is a kind of um, a disguise in a sense. But the idea is that they're going to kind of perform authentic African-American music that they're kind of transmitting the music of the plantations. And they all talk about how they learned on the plantations. Um, now, this form is so complex and so important in American cultural history. It's kind of the foundation for American popular culture in, in all kinds of ways and continues to really shape, uh, I think, so much about our performing arts and continues to be a very vexed and complicated thing to, to talk about. Um, but what I argue in the book is that Really, the, the birth of blackface minstrelsy is the, is, the, is the meaning of two strands, two historical strands. One is the tradition of blackface performance, which goes very far back, actually, in European theater. Um, and especially starting 17th, 18th century in Anglophone theater, you have the various depictions of black characters by white actors in blackface. There's also a tradition that is much lesser known than I document in the book, uh, blackface performance coming out of the Caribbean, particular Haiti in the 18th century. So that's one strand, but that, that theater is essentially European style theater, mostly with European music. Um, and then you have the banjo tradition, which I, which as I argue is really emerging from the kind of Afro-Caribbean and African-American history and culture. It's, it's coming out of that experience directly. Um, and eventually what you have is, is these early blackface minstrels kind of combine blackface, uh, theatrical traditions. With the sound of the banjo, and they create this new kind of concoction of symbols um, and sound that becomes, you know, really, really popular and really important in 19th century America, and becomes one of the main vehicles through which um, slave culture is depicted, um, with all kinds of implications in terms of, you know, the, the the history of racism and racial representations, as well as the history of performance in America. Now, now this may be
1: going a little bit further uh, than 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 your book does. Um, but I was really intrigued at this kind of moment as you're writing about this is how questions of authenticity, um, which we kind of think of sort of being a 20, 20th or 21st century issue, maybe related to hip hop. It also seems like it really comes back with the banjo, right? And so so many of these appropriations, or I'm using the word appropriations of the banjo in blackface Pace Minstrelsy seem about Connecting up to a form of authenticity. And even in the book, you describe a number of African American uh, banjo players who are sort of the innovators and really shaped what these white performers were ultimately doing. So I don't know, what, what were you, what kind of insights did you get about sort of the role of authenticity even in the 19th century with how the banjo kind of connoted authenticity?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think here's what, you know, for me, this was really interesting because I really, I think this is, you know, a core issue in just American popular culture, that there is really no, no place in American popular culture. I would, if, if we argue, let's say that that minstrelsy is the birth of that form. I mean, we can debate a bit about that, but I would argue that in the early 19th century, um, that at no moment then in the history of American popular culture, popular culture, is there, is there anything outside of this problem of, um, essentially you have, you know, you have a performance cultures that are deeply indebted to and rooted in African-American styles of performance. And at the same time, those performance cultures are emerging in a racial landscape of deep, you know, deep racism, segregation, full slavery, and then segregation in which um, the access that black performers have to any site of kind of you know, of performance is extremely limited; is extremely constrained, right? Um, so the power dynamics, which are kind of exclusion of blacks from the actual sites of, of at least remunerative performance, um, and, and at the same time, you have a deep desire from audiences to see um, what they perceive as as black music, um, and the the things that have scholars have struggled with for so long as to whether you know is. How seriously to take the claims of say, blackface minstrels that they had learned and really gotten um, this sound from from African Americans versus um, claiming that and then kind of playing you know something else or or becoming essentially parodies of of black music and that is something that you know there are books and books about this that kind of go back and forth about this that I tried to synthesize. It's the part of the book, I mean much of the book was really original research. this was the part of the book where I really had to navigate you know, American studies and and American cultural history and try to synthesize it. But I do think that the banjo is sort of the key to the story in a sense, because, um, that instrument, which, um, was exciting for people to see because it was American fundamentally, right? It was an instrument that they knew was American. It wasn't a European instrument. Um, the reason, of course, it was American is because it was a black instrument, right? That's what made it, I mean, that's kind of what made it possible to have that instrument there To, ha- to because it was coming out of African-American culture. Um, and that just ambiguity that the only way to be American in some ways was to be playing African-American music, even as... um you know, people were maintaining these structures of exclusion and creating often racist, very racist performance um, is I mean, I think you kind of look right into that and you can see, you know, all the all the contradictions of American culture. Um, and certainly authenticity was the from the very first was the whole point. The reason that uh, white performers put on blackface was in some ways because. They had to signal a certain kind of authenticity. It was like you had to be a black person to be able to play this music. Whether you were disguising yourself, um, you still had to do it. And for a really, really long time, that continued to be the case. So that after the Civil War, when things open up for African-American performers – a lot of what they do is to sort of say, you know, you all have been listening to a, a, a sort of fake version of African-American music. Now we're going to play the genuine version, right? Um, we are actually African-Americans and we can bring you this. But so – of course, they're stepping into a landscape that's already been shaped by decades of, of menstrual performance. So the expectations of audiences, um, play into that. But so many of these groups actually have the word like genuine is a constant, is one of the many, you know, often that the, the, the groups themselves call themselves the genuine something, right? Um, and so authenticity is at the, at the core of this. And I think the, the, the re- there's really interesting connections to be made between the, the fact that this continues to be, uh, a central issue in popular culture in America and this deep history. And
1: again, uh, trying to keep all the threads of, of the, the book kind of uh, together here is one of the things I thought was interesting and it took me, I don't know, probably much too long to kind of figure this out and remember this is that as I was reading the book, I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, I know how it, Instruments are created. You go down to the music store and you, you buy an instrument that's been mass produced. And mm-hmm. so when we get to the 19th century, I I really, I guess I had this uh, this moment where I, maybe an epiphany where I was like, oh, yeah, it's really not till the middle, late 19th century, where it's you have banjo makers as opposed mm-hmm. to musicians who are making their instruments. So can you maybe describe this transition and how sort of, the beginning, I don't want to say mass production of banjos, but sort of the centralized production of banjos. How does that change things and how does that, that affect the banjo?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean that's a, that's sort of a pivotal change in in the history of the instrument um, and it's linked to minstrelsy, right? So the rise of minstrelsy – and the early minstrels make their own, are kind of making their own instruments for the most part um, – So the rise of that creates an audience who – of people who are also – decide that they're interested in playing the same instrument, right? So amateur musicians um, and you eventually get these books that sort of teach – you know, some of the first books that teach you how to play the banjo – the, the big kind of construction issue for the banjo that I talk about throughout the book is that um, while having a skin on a resonator, it makes a very beautiful sound. It's also a kind of technological challenge. How do you attach a skin to something fragile like gourd or wood? Um, and early on, there are different ways. Actually, some West African instruments do this with like leather s- strings. I mean, kind of you kind of tie it to something. You can do that. Um, but in a lot of the constructions in the New World, it seems to have been sort of tacked on. Um, and we have um, there's one. There are two. There are two kind of extant gourd banjos from the Caribbean. From the 18th and early 19th century. One of them, I think the most interesting and important is, is a Haitian one, um, what I write, which I write about extensively in the book. So just having that, we're able to see certain parts of the construction. The point was you had to tack on these with literally metal tacks, these skins, um, and skins of course, stretch and contract, uh, especially in kind of colder weather and wet weather, um, which is one of the reasons I argue. And this was an insight I gained from, from Pete Ross, who is a, a banjo maker, um, that in a lot of contexts, especially in kind of northern European contexts, it would have been just really hard to maintain a skin on a on a on a um, on a resonator, which is probably one reason why this this essentially faded out of European instrument makers' uh, a sort of repertoire. Um, so, you, in the early 19th century, there's a group, there's a family, the Boucher family, who are uh, immigrants from Germany. They're instrument makers, um, and they're aware of this new technology that's developed. Uh, for drums actually to essentially it's a, a way to use metal to attach drums to a frame um, and the big kind of revolutionary moment comes when they realize that that technology can be used to remake essentially how the banjo um, is constructed so that instead of having say a gourd with a skin tacked on you can actually create a kind of round piece of wood which then uses this metal technology with these different pieces of metal essentially that kind of it's a it's a whole ring of metal that, that sort of solid. solid keeps the banjo head on. And that's the big transformation. Once they've figured that out, first of all, they can make banjos where the heads sort of stay on more successfully onto different kinds of resonators, which enables a kind of large scale production of these instruments in first in kind of what are artisanal shops. Basically, they're not really factories, but in time, these these become kind of factory made instruments. And that means that, you know, for better or worse, many, many more people get to have banjos and uh, there's this kind of skyrocketing production of the instrument and the instrument's suddenly becomes a a kind of, A pretty mass consumer object, a thing that many, you know, late 19th century Americans want to have. Um, and they become very elaborate objects too, with, you know, a really incredible pearl and, you know, pearl inlays and ivory and decorations and more and more sophisticated, uh, metal, uh, you know, pieces that can kind of allow you to, to tune them in certain ways or to kind of keep the head on tight and so forth. Um, and, uh, that's, that's the story I sort of tell in the second half of the book.
1: Yeah, and then and so and so this is why I, I, I love the book because it keeps kinda going back and forth, and then you, you talk about how, you know, in the midst of this sort of, you know, popular uh, boon of the banjo related to minstrelsy, it, it, it takes up a main role in jazz. And I had never thought about the banjo in jazz. And so what role did the banjo play in, in early jazz and maybe what what kind of performers used them?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, so one of the one of the sort of performers I love in this book or talk about in this book is James Reese Europe, who had this kind of giant orchestra um, that he wanted to create kind of African-American orchestral music. And so he decided that you needed to have kind of banjos and mandolins and stand-up pianos and kind of bring African-American sounds to the stage. So he had this orchestra with, with dozens and dozens of banjos. Um, and his influence, I think, helps to shape the early jazz use of the banjo. The thing about these new banjos Which actually is really different from the old banjos. If if someone then you now can find these many makers like Pete Ross and others make gourd banjos the way they used to make, and it's a very mellow sounding instrument. As are some of the early minstrel banjos. You know these are mostly organic; they don't have a lot of metal on them. So this is a kind of lower sound, a kind of really pretty mellow, rounded sound. It's very very different from the kind of bling that we think of as the sound of the banjo today. This bright kind of bright metallic sound. That's so the technology changes. It it makes the banjo accessible to all kinds of new places, uh, but it also makes it sound very different. And the thing about those new banjos is that they're loud and they can cut through sound. So, in the early jazz, um, a lot of which is played on river boats in the Mississippi, um, where you basically have a really long sort of room where everybody's dancing with drummers, uh, you know brass, maybe bass, and a guitar in that setting just wouldn't would bear it which could be completely drowned out. Um, a banjo, however, a banjo head um, with that kind of metal structure could kind of cut through that and and so banjo was used as this really central rhythm instrument in early jazz um, as long as uh, Um, really up until the moment when the electric guitar comes in and the electric guitar replaces it because it can do the same thing once you have amplification. Um, But until there's amplification, the banjo is really central to that music. Um, And interestingly, in certain styles of Caribbean music um, still played to this day, like Mento and Troubadour music in Haiti, the banjo has a similar role or a related role of kind of this key rhythm instrument um, that you play when you're playing kind of acoustic music. So... I. uh
1: We've kind of or I've kind of not asked questions about what was happening with the banjo in the Caribbean um, during the 1800s. So what what was happening with the banjo uh, at that at that time period there?
0: Um so that's an interesting question. I mean it's it's clear um the banjo that, that I described that's from Haiti was collected in 1841 um which suggests you know in the 19th century and 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 throughout the 19th century probably this instrument being played. What's interesting is there's this kind of interesting gap because in the 20th century Caribbean what we see is that um most There are some people who do build their banjos using old techniques, but a lot of times people are basically buying these mass-produced banjos from North America. Although, interestingly, like players in Appalachia and elsewhere, um, they'll often uh, remove the frets or sort of shave off the frets to make fretless uh, instruments, Um, and they'll sometimes adapt them in other ways. Um, So – you clearly have a kind of continuity in some ways in musical styles but but at one point or another the the mass production of banjos in north america becomes i mean north America becomes the place where banjos come from basically right all over the world um and even in i describe briefly you know in North African music where people incorporate banjos in the twentieth century they're getting you know fender or or these large produced banjos from north america that are that are seen as the best um so at the same time however, I do make a, a pretty uh, close connection to these traditions because I connect uh, a contemporary tradition in Haiti, Troubadour music, which is based on the banjo. Um, there's an interpreter of this actually in the United States now, Leila McCalla, who's, um, who is one of the members of this group called the Carolina Chocolate Drops and now has a solo career and she plays some of this Haitian Troubadour music on the banjo for people who want to listen to it. Um, but that tradition includes these songs that are deep deep-rooted in kind of Haitian in, uh, religious and cultural life. And one of them, a song called Three Leaves or Trois Feuilles, um, I connect in the book to actually uh, the name of a musician whose name I discovered in 18th century Haiti. Um, so I actually try to argue that there's a lot of continuities um, there within these kind of banjo traditions, just as there are in the United States. Um, and I think that's part of the book that will be pretty new for most people. and it, it was, This was the reason I ended up writing this book was because I understood that as a Caribbeanist, I could bring something to the story that, um, you know, that, that was new. And I think connecting that kind of, you know, connecting Haiti and Appalachia, for instance, which I actually try to do in this book. Um, I actually think makes a lot of sense, but it's obviously, uh, two places that people don't usually think about as connected.
1: Well, talking about Appalachia, you know, um, I'm someone who's in my mid forties and I've always thought or for most of my life, I always thought of banjo as being really a white rural instrument. Mm-hmm. so, Um, Maybe briefly, how did the banjo, which has this sort of rich and complicated and maybe even a little bit contentious history connected with African American culture, how did it become so associated, at least for my generation, as being sort of white country and rural?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's partly, you know, in some ways the, <laughs> the key to this book is that, um, that is how most people think of the banjo is, is as Appalachian, um, European, um, in some ways, right. Are playing, the, the playing kind of older, let's say ballad tunes and ballad traditions coming out of Scotland and England. And all that is definitely true. There's a deep and really rich Appalachian tradition of banjo playing, um, I think, you know, part of this is that um, there's a great book uh, called Segregating Sound, which sort of shows how throughout history, or especially in the 20th century, both record labels and folklorists and others um, often tended to approach music in a way where white and black music were kind of thought of as in some ways parallel strands in a certain way, Um, which is sort of remarkable given how clearly intertwined they've been throughout our history. But, you know, that's kind of... A projection of of American racial ideology onto the musical sphere, and Appalachia, therefore came to be constituted um, in the imaginary of America as a kind of site of, of relatively isolated white communities, you know, who had been in the hills, right, and there for for generations and where you could therefore find kinds of music that um, had been passed on from generation to generation. Um, now, the truth of it is that, I mean, we don't, it's never, you can never prove an absence exactly, but um, it seems most likely that the banjo really gets embedded in the Appalachia probably... Over the course of the 19th century, and there's sort of a contentious debate about whether it comes sort of via African-Americans, many of whom are coming to the region notably as convict laborers building the railroads in the 19th century, or via minstrels, um, I, like in a very cultural historian way, I think it probably came with a bunch of different routes and kind of the point is that it moved into this area probably both through minstrel shows and through African-American players. And it gets rooted and kind of absorbed into Appalachian uh, life. Um, But the way that Appalachian players play and the way that say African-American Piedmont players play, um, these are not you know distinct grammars. These are totally interlinked in a certain way. Um, What does happen in Appalachia is that people... Interestingly, while there's this mass production going on, there's in Appalachia a kind of reinvigoration of, of, of often building one's own banjos. So we're altering banjos and people are really interested in they develop all these different tunings and there's all these different really individual styles um, that emerge. And by the 20s and 30s, a lot of this stuff is recorded um, under the rubric of hillbilly music. And then there, those recordings become the foundation for the folk revival of, of the 50s, in particular through one, one very famous anthology that basically takes these earlier recordings and kind of um, curates them in a way. Um, And the end of the book is really about that kind of major movement in which you have um, the recordings of music, of certain kinds of folk music, um, often from Appalachia, become the basis for this folk revival, and and in particular through the form of Pete Seeger, who, um, you know, kind of crystallizes this on so many levels, and who, in a sense, reinvents and kind of transforms the banjo once again in a way that's both... Very new and also, of course, deeply rooted uh, in this much longer tradition, and that's the kind of image that. So, in the twentieth century, that's where we tend to hear the banjo, both in in what are actually interlinked movements, which is the kind of the the emergence of bluegrass and the emergence of folk though today these are thought of as almost antithetical in some ways or, or very different kind of social have very different social and political meanings. Um, but both of those are kind of, in a sense, connected to uh, a kind of reinvigoration of certain kinds of Southern rural music, um, that is again, presented as, as white and rural, um, even though all of them have deep roots, um, through the instrument itself and through the styles in in African American history. Um, and, Bluegrass music is deeply Afro-Atlantic music, um, as much as that's probably difficult for people to, to fully understand or accept today. Um, those connections are quite clear, I think. Well,
1: this has been a wonderful, uh, discussion. Um, I've learned so much about, about the banjo. Um, but before we go, um, are there any projects that you're currently working on?
0: Um, well, one that I'm most excited about is we've um, developed a website. It's called Musical Passage, uh, musicalpassage.org. Um, that'll just be launching uh, right in early June um, in which we've taken that one transcription of music from 17th century Jamaica. And I've been working with a musician and another scholar um, to allow people to basically hear that music. Um, so we've that there are interpretations of that music on banjo um, to try to kind of reconstruct that. Um, so that's, that's one project and others will follow. I think obviously one thing I learned in writing the book, is that um, text is great for telling this big narrative, um, but there are pieces of writing about music and sound that you really just can't do unless people can hear it. <laughs> so, um, so I think uh, some of what I'll be doing in the next little while is is, is building on the book, but also creating these kind of sonic uh, experiences to to kind of interpret and present um, some of this material in, in sound form as well. That looks great. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: You have been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Laurent Dubois, the author of The Banjo, America's African Instrument. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.